I'm the doctor. So you're the famous Sam. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that loves conjunctions in language, such as and, or, but, because, for, if, and when. (laughs) And ironically, the adventure we're talking about today has no conjunctions in its title, although it does feature the word conjunction. What we are, though, is here to look to explore those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And, to use a conjunction, I'm Kenny Smith. You join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines, and everything else. Indeed we are, but today we have reached the 16th novel in the EDA series. We have indeed. We are chatting about the Janus Conjunction, and we did have to check the pronunciation. Some would say Janus, but others prefer Janus. You say Janus and I instantly think of um, Janus and Friends. Anyway, it's not. This is uh, the Janus Conjunction by Trevor Baxendale, in which the Doctor's companion, Sam Jones, dies. And, to use another conjunction, she's later resurrected. This sounds a lot like Grace and Changley at the end of the TV movie. Did the Doctor activate the hardest happy endings control again? <laughs> well, we'll come to that later when we speak to Trevor to find out what happened and why he did it and how, and the fact he got away with it. So, yes, all is good there. So... Tell us about the Janus Conjunction, which was published on the 5th of October 1998, which is actually the same day as the birthday of my friend Mark, who's a huge Doctor Who fan and got me into fandom in the first place, and Laura, who's not a Doctor Who fan, but thinks the new version of the Doctor Who logo looks like the Paw Patrol logo, but turned upside down. Oh, it does. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, that's ruined it for me. That's terrible. But yes, reading voice, activate. The planets Janus Prime and Mender are diametrically opposed in orbit around a vast red giant star. But while Mender is rich and fertile in the light of the sun, Janus Prime endures everlasting night, its moon causing a permanent solar eclipse. When the Doctor and Sam arrive on Janus Prime, they find themselves in the middle of a war between rival humans colonising the area. The planet is littered with ancient ruins, and the Mendons are using a mysterious hyperspatial link left behind by the planet's former inhabitants. But what is its true purpose? The Doctor and Sam must piece together a centuries-old puzzle. How can Janus Prime's moon weigh billions of tons more than it should? Why is the planet riddled with deadly radiation? As the violence escalates around them, will the time travellers survive to discover the answers? Well, we may not get that answer right now, but we will find out what Steve Cole, who was the BBC Books Range editor, thought about it and how the commission came about. Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books Doctor Who list back in the late 90s. Our next book is The Janus Conjunction by Trevor Baxendale. So Trevor, somebody who'd always sort of been around fandom, I was aware of his work initially as an artist for The Frame. So, do you remember much about how his commission came about? Oh, I do. I do indeed. Um, it was it was a fairly lengthy process. Obviously, we had a lot of manuscripts on the slush pile, as it is so inelegantly known. Lots of hopes and dreams there. 
and there was this uh, this folder, this you know, those wallet folders, card folders with uh, a lot of stuff on the Janus conjunction, and I didn't feel that the story was quite right, but wow, this guy could tell Doctor Who, you know, he was, he was just, you know, an author who got it and clearly a huge fan. But, you know, so you could, you could sort of like feel the Doctor Who-ness of it was right. Um, I just wasn't quite sure about the plot. And so I explained uh, my reservations to Trevor, who just went very professionally, went back and produced something else. And I shared it with Leslie Levine and we kind of, you know, it became this thing that was sitting on the, sh- on the, on the desk. And, you know, when she'd come in for uh, one of her days of fortnight or whatever, she'd be saying, well, how is, how is Trevor's book coming? And uh, we'd, we'd talk about that all unofficially. Getting to do a lot of work on it. And he never complained. And he did it brilliantly. And it was really great to, uh, to find another new voice for the range, one who'd come up through fandom that, that hadn't uh, written for Virgin already. It felt good to be finding new people and then launching launching their careers really you know in terms of you know obviously Trevor was working anyway but in terms of uh, his, his writing career that was great and I was very again very excited when uh, when things went well he was helpful he was obliging he was professional he had some fantastic ideas just uh, you know it took a little while to to get the the shape of the novel together uh, and what the thrust would be but um, for a first go I think it's uh, it's really really good so I have, yeah, great fond memories of working with Trevor on that. And of course, it was not the last the range would see of Trevor Baxendale. <laughs> a great cover too. Very memorable those blue sands. Yeah, yeah. It had, it had the feeling of a proper sci-fi novel, which we often kind of went for. There was quite a lot of pressure from um, sales to um, take the books down to... Um, specialist stores or online ordering which i resisted quite strongly because i felt if we ghettoized doctor who if it did come back it would be harder to to sell in to the mainstream again it might have been better from a costings point of view because we could have printed exactly the number we needed rather than the uh, the print run that went out there um by this point of course with doctor who not on the telly it wasn't you know each book wasn't like you know blistering up the uh, the top 10 but they were selling, you know, solidly and to uh, presumably the uh, generally the same people. And so I was always mindful that, you know, we were caretaking Doctor Who, we were the custodians of it. And I resisted anything that would try and push it into the shadows, you know, while it was still, while someone could go down to W.H. Smith's and buy their Doctor Who books, I felt there was still hope in the world. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I think some things are more fun when you can actually just go in and just get them for many years. And I didn't, you know, I finally gave in to a Doctor Who magazine subscription after many years just going down the newsagent deliberately to buy it. And sometimes if you forgot and missed one, then you'd have to sort of like track it down. And in a way that was part of the fun as well. Um, I think we like to find, um, go looking for things. If we can't find it in the first shop, we'll look in the second. If we can't find it there, we'll look in the third. We're tenacious as a breed, <laughs> Doctor Who fans. So uh, yeah, um, and around that time, I remember there was, there was talk of that. And I remember having to go to the uh, sales conference and just trying, you know, I sent up the range a little bit and laughed at some of the letters I got and, you know, tried to make reps laugh about it, but also tried to realise that this was actually a lot of fun. We didn't have to just consign it to a, to a box marked science fiction for understanding only by 
<laughs> only by the outcasts of society or whatever it was that some of these uh, some of these reps felt because uh, because we were operating out of sports motoring and entertainment group by then so it really wasn't like anything else they were trying to sell doctor who was a problem for everyone except me uh, for me it was like you know just a sort of like a, a leaden weight around my neck <laughs> a leaden weight that i loved but yeah it was it was hard keeping people infused uh, and so being able to have stories attached like you know there's a, a guy who's come up out of the uh, the ranks and has produced really good work and this is work that we should be sharing and shouting about and uh, championing new writers what other rangers doing this so yeah that's what i remember about that time thanks again steve it's really nice to not see you again <laughs> <laughs> well before we get to our interviews let's hear an extract from the book courtesy of chris third who's a sci-fi fan and colleague of mine at work, and he's a big fan of something called, hang on, let's check this, Star Trek. Have you ever heard of that? No idea, it must be some sort of small, obscure show. Nope, don't know it at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, that really tickled me. Lily, <laughs> thrill of anticipation ran through Sam. Where? When? That's what I'm trying to find out, if I can just lock onto the coordinates. The doctor began stabbing buttons and pulling levers with great energy. He activated the overhead viewing dome and the entire ceiling was instantly replaced by a huge red sun. The surface burned and fumed like a cauldron of molten lava, gouts of flame spouting into the vacuum around it. Wow, said Sam. Fire in the sky, sang the doctor quietly. The TARDIS was bathed in a scarlet glow, which reminded Sam, rather unnervingly, of a submarine's emergency lighting. What is it? Red giant, the doctor said. An old star about to burn itself out. That's the problem? Shouldn't be. The doctor shut down the observatory, and the TARDIS's lighting returned to its normal subdued state. Destination monitor hanging on a large Z-spring overhead flickered and filled up with digital information. The doctor spared it no more than a cursory glance before operating the controls that Sam knew governed the TARDIS's landing procedure. Caruso will have to wait. Pulling the handbrake and grinning as the desperate wheeze of materialisation began to echo around the huge chamber. Suddenly everything bucked and right on bucking as if the TARDIS was being dragged down a long flight of stairs. Sam gripped the shuddering console and gaped at the doctor, who was operating the controls in a markedly alarmed fashion. What the? Synchronic feedback, yelled the doctor. Sam watched the doctor's cup of tea begin to slide towards the edge of the console. She reached out one hand and held the cup of saucer still. Syncopated what? She called back. She could hear things falling all over the place. Candelabras, statuettes, clocks. Then the TARDIS gave a final convulsive lurch. Something big crashed the floor, and then everything was still. Sam automatically checked the time rotor at the centre of the console, sighing with relief when she saw that the glowing filaments inside the glass column were stationary. They had landed. Whew, she said. The doctor casually flicked some switches as if nothing had happened. I think we were caught in a gravitic multi-loop, he muttered. Probably a side effect of that anomalous hyperspatial mass reading I told you about. Unlucky. Sam checked the overhead monitor instead. It read, Destination, Janus Prime. Dateline, 1409-2211. Humanian Era. She reached up and twisted one of the Bakelite control knobs on the base of the old TV set. The 
picture flickered and turned into a black and white view from where the TARDIS had landed. Sam immediately saw an image of a human figure, a woman, running towards the scanner, pursued by some kind of giant insect. Problem, yelled Sam, of a bug-eyed monster variety. She turned to see the doctor already halfway to the exit doors and sprinted after him. Thanks to Chris for that and live long and prosper. (laughs) (laughs) That is a Scottish accent that is very different from yours, Kenny. So where's that from? That's from Aberdeen. There's also, there's actually like up in the northeast of Scotland, there's uh, the Doric, which is like a subset of English, but with an Aberdonian accent. So instead of saying good morning, you'll say what like, except you don't say what like, you'll say fit like. And you won't say, uh, how's it going, my female friend? You'll say fit like McQueen, or if it's to a man, fit like Maloon. So it all sounds like that, and it's something else. It's, it's brilliant. My dad I used to speak the Doric, in fact. He lived in Aberdeenshire when he was younger, and when he moved back down to the Glasgow area, he had to get elocution lessons because nobody understood what he was saying. <laughs> oh, poor old dad. But the really weird That's thing was, was when I was young, I used to go up to the northeast and visit family there, and he'd just switch into the Doric, and my sister and I were just going, what the hell is he doing? What is he? What is he doing that for? But it was just a natural thing that just clicks in. So, although it sounds fascinating, I feel like if I ever went, I would just be stood there confused. Like I don't know what anyone's saying to me. <laughs> well, it's got the best football team in Scotland. I think we should move away from this talk about Scottish politics, even oh, no. if it does revolve around football. No, no, we'll just avoid it altogether. Good idea. Let's hear from the author Trevor Baxendale. Absolutely, he's a scouser, so. I mean, where's if Liverpool would have any football knowledge? <gasps> He's not interested that, in football. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Can't anyway. say something like that to me. No, I forgot. You're a red. Liverpool red. Mm-hmm. Anyway, right. Over to Trev. Yeah, I'm Trevor Baxendale, and I wrote the James Conjunction. Welcome back to Pieces of Eighth. In a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey way, we're talking about your first book, having talked about your third one. Okay, go right ahead. That's the way we roll. That's the way we roll. So how did the commission for this come about? Because you were somebody whose name I recognised through fandom from having done the artwork for The Frame. And then it was I found it a bit of a surprise that you went straight into 8DAs and not having done a new adventure. Well, I did try to write... Uh, some new adventures for, for, for Virgin. I did get in touch with Peter Darvel Evans when he was there, and uh, he was very encouraging. And I did throw some sample chapters and writing at him. N- never got anything commissioned there. I got so, I got some some good advice back the first time, and then I did try a little again a little later for Missing Adventure. Um, but by that point, I think they were being uh, inundated with fans trying to break into into writing so the the rejection letter for that was 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 quite sort of it was just like a tick list basically of things that i needed to look at or think again and why it had been rejected and when i looked through that tick list i thought you know what i i, I don't agree with a lot of that so <laughs> i sort of in my mind i just sort of shelved it and said oh well you know i, I won't bother i'll leave that now but then when the licence went to BBC Books and they started up again, I sort of got, and the Paul McGann movie came, of course, that sort of galvanised my uh, renewed interest in the whole thing and Doctor Who. And so 
I did send in because obviously the books were basically under new management. I sent in uh, an on-spec proposal and um, a couple of chapters, sample chapters, and I didn't hear anything back at all. And I was at a Doctor Who convention, and that must have been around about 1997. I'm not sure where it was. I can't even remember which one it was, but I remember BBC Books had a stand there with their first few adventures, you know, just just images of them. And there was a man sort of manning the stand. So I spoke to him about it, and it turned out that was Steve Cole. And I explained that I had submitted, you know, proposal and some sample chapters, but not heard anything back. And he said, oh, you should have heard back by now. Well, he said, when I get back to the office, I'll have a route around and see if I can find anything for it. So I said, oh, I'd be very grateful. So I just left my name and, and contact details with him. And uh, to my great surprise, I got a letter about a month later saying that they'd found it. And he really thought it was well written, but he wasn't keen on the story. He didn't like the fact that I didn't... Oh, yeah, he wasn't too keen on the story, so could I come back with, with, with something else? So I did that. I think my initial, I think my initial submission to him included some Tarans. I don't know why I, I included sort of established monster. Maybe it's just because I felt I was more comfortable writing with something like that. And uh, he got back in touch with me and said, and said, really like this, but I don't like the Suntarans. We don't want any sort of old enemies in, established Doctor Who enemies. Can we just have something new? Can you come up with a new monster? So I rewrote the pitch with a new monster in place of the Suntarans, which I invented myself. So I was quite pleased with actually the the Omwinar, which were like floating sentient jellyfish type things, which uh, he didn't like those either. <laughs> and he said, perhaps I should think about replacing those monsters with a humanoid enemy so that it was more like, because of the, the nature of, of, the, of the plot, it was more one set of humanoids versus another set of humans, sort of an, a rivalry between those. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I rewrote it again. And uh, to my complete surprise, he wrote back and offered me uh, a commission for the book, which I, I was just blown away by that because, you know, I didn't expect it to go so well. And yeah. my son had just been born by this point. So I remember sitting in the in the maternity hospital for one of the post maternity sort of uh, checkups with the baby in, in the carry call with, uh, and the letter in, in my <laughs> other hand with the offer letter and <laughs> sort of talking it over with my wife saying isn't this amazing? She's like yes this is also amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I recognise yeah, that. Yeah so um, so I said about writing it and at that point I was writing everything on um, it was an electronic typewriter I had no computer, no internet or anything like that. So all my communications with BBC Books were by letter, by, by snail mail. So I said about writing this on an electronic computer that could, it had enough memory for about a chapter or a half a chapter. Um, and then I could sort of press print and it would, it would print that off, but I'd have to put each piece of paper in separately. You know, I couldn't just leave a wad of paper like on a printer. So, um, 
that was how I wrote it. And because I didn't, didn't sort of have any sort of other inkling of how to do it, that seemed to be the normal way of doing it. So I carried on writing until I finished. Uh, and then I had a stack of paperwork like this, a whole wadge of or however many uh, sheets of paper it was. I packed that up and posted it off in the post office to Steve Cole at BBC Books and, and then sat back and waited. And lo and behold, it came back a little while later with some, you know, editorial comments and, and notes and suggestions for change, which was a bit of a nightmare because then there were some parts where it was halfway down the page and you wanted another paragraph adding or something like that or, or paragraphs taken out. So, and I only had this hard copy of everything. Yeah. So it was a case of literally like rewriting the entire chapter. Or in some cases, I was... I was photocopying the chapter with another piece of text taped out, sort of taped over, so, and then including the photocopied sheet yep. in, in the manuscript. Cause that long story short, eventually sent it off, by which point I really had come to the conclusion that I definitely needed a computer, a word processor, and the internet. So when I got the final, the final notes back for a few other suggestions, I'd actually we'd actually got our first. PC, which I very hastily set up on the kitchen table and plugged it in, and we had a dial-up internet connection, so I was able to get email. So the final, final few um, uh, amendments were made, uh, and I was able to store the whole thing then onto a floppy disk. Whoa! And send that off to uh, <laughs> to to Steve at BBC Books, and uh, and and that was the James Conjunction written. And I think the reason why my memory of it, it, it all involves around the practicalities of actually typing it out on typewriters or, or whether I had email or not is because the actual writing of it, I found surprisingly straightforward. I think I was on such a high at getting commissioned that all I wanted to do was sit at that keyboard yeah. and type out my, my Doctor Who adventure. You'd also be able to keep an eye on a little person as well. If they were awake through the night, you could type at the same time. Well, yes, I didn't do much at time. I mean, I did start developing then a habit of sort of typing quite late into the evenings, yes, but I yeah. think of it doing, it, doing it with a newborn baby as well. Well, yeah, I mean, he must have been around one and a half by that point, by the time yeah. I actually finished writing, yeah. Oh, fabulous. I mean, it's a fantastic setting with the whole Janus Prime and the, the Janus system and what was your, what, do you remember anything that inspired the creation of those? Had you been reading anything else that sort of triggered something in you? I hadn't, no, because I, I didn't read a lot of science fiction. My sort of major science fiction background was what I had seen on Doctor Who or Space 1999 or any of those sort of programmes that were popular science fiction ideas. Mm. What I wanted, I, I think the genesis of, of that particular planetary sort of system and arrangement came from the fact that I wanted some sort of doomsday type weapon based around the sun being triggered into, into a supernova. And for that to happen, I reasoned, you'd have to massively increase the, the mass of the star very, very quickly. So I just developed this idea of you'd have these two trigger planets on either side that had been left over by a previous civilization that could sort of, through a teleport link, could transfer a huge amount of mass 
stored in hyperspace or whatever into the center of the sun once the once the thing had been triggered and uh, as a sort of visual thing for that i had them th that they had to be you know eclipsing each other um so th th there was an eclipse they had to be diametrically opposite sides of the sun and that's how how that is it's just spurious doctor who science really but of course i tried to make <laughs> it sound reasonable because <laughs> <laughs> before i had a we we read back through it the thing that i most remembered about this book is radiation and I don't know if that's sort of triggered by the, the fantastic cover. It just made me think radiation. And that's and that is the, the, the core of the story, isn't it, really? It is, yes, yeah, because uh that they, because James Prime is like a sort of radioactive hellhole, isn't there, where he, it starts to affect the people who are living there if 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 they stay there for any length of time. It, it's all it's all a case of sort of building in in jeopardy and natural jeopardy as well, so that you, you're not only dealing with the with the, the plot and characters, but the actual place is trying to kill you as well. It just heightens the. You're always looking when I'm writing books for some sort of countdown pressure, if you like. So you're working against the clock because you, you can you can build in tension and, and and suspense and excitement that way. So if you've got like a countdown, like we can't spend any longer here than the, than we need to, otherwise we're going to die horribly of radiation poisoning. And uh, I think I was sort of midway through the proposal and I realised actually we could give Sam radiation sickness as, a, as an extra sort of spur of, of responsibility and problems for the Doctor. By this point, Sam had been quite established. How did you find getting a handle on her? Because quite a few other writers had, particularly in the early days, found her quite difficult to get a hold of. Yeah, I think so. I, I can't remember, I can't remember really writing for her except in pretty generic terms as she'd been described. I'd read a few of the books that had started the series by this point already, so I, I, I was taking my lead from their characterizations, but I confess that I, I sort of put the most attention on the Doctor himself, which I tried to distill Paul McGann's performance from the TV movie, which is all we had to go on at that point. There were no audios. I think they had, by that point, released his audiobook of Gary Russell's novelization. And I think there were also a couple of short stories which he had narrated as well. Yeah, Earth and Beyond, I think, had been released by that point as well. Yeah, I had them on cassette and uh, <laughs> on tape cassette. Yeah, and I, I did too. <laughs> I listened to those all the time just to try and get his voice in my head. I must admit, I didn't sort of take too much from the, as I think I mentioned with Usual Wasps, I didn't take too much from other people's characterization of him in their books. I sort of tried to just stick to what I'd actually seen in the TV movie because that felt that felt more genuine to me than to sort of take other people's interpretation of that and their spins on it or whatever they tried to do with the character because I thought there was a danger of that character, the Eighth Doctor, becoming either too generic or a bit characterless. So I, th I felt personally there was a lot to go on from a TV movie in that respect, so I just tried to, tried to distill that character straight into my story. I think he definitely comes across it. I think he's he's quite well established by this point, and we've got a. I think you definitely 
definitely captured him. I think there's some some very interesting characters who we meet along the way here. Julia, Vigo, and there's some rather nasty deaths, it has to be said in here, particularly from radiation. Well, obviously, we'll, we'll come to Sam's fate at the end of the novel uh, later on, but did you quite enjoy being... There's a, just a little bit of a dark edge to that. Yes, I did, and I'm not quite sure why why I did that. It just felt natural to me. I, I think probably the way that the, the Virgin and A's are gone, which were quite steered towards quite an older age group, and I think the BBC novels were sort of sort of along the same sort of track, the same sort of sidelines. Perhaps perhaps they weren't prepared to go to quite some of the extremes that the early Virgin New Adventures went to, but it was they were certainly aiming to a very similar age group to myself uh, and yourself at the time. So I, I was sort of I was sort of writing to that end really. And it's quite good fun, I'd imagine, just being able to just do a little bit of horror, almost a bit of horror, sort of just make it icky. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably true of a lot of my books. Actually, <laughs> when, when in doubt, make it icky is a <laughs> is a rule of thumb for me. Yes, yeah, I did enjoy all the stuff about the spy droids and that. I remember getting a book out from the library about spider anatomy, so I could sound like I knew what I was talking about with. The, uh, the the changes to them. Yeah, I think they were a good creation as well, and it's a wonderful name as well. So you're getting a bit of spying spiders, droids, three in one. Is it one of those names yeah, that come up yeah, with pretty it, quickly? It works. It works really well. But I also wanted to get sort of the, the, the tragedy of them being used like that across, which uh, something the doctor would tap into straight away. Whereas everybody else would just see monsters. He was very much ever. Oh, you poor thing! What have they done to you, type of them? Yeah, I mean, something that Russell T did when they brought the show back was to make sure that we could sort of relate to the people that we meet. I mean, they could be from another planet entirely, but there will still be something about them that we can get to grips with and they'll feel familiar. And I thought very much so. I felt that with this, there's relatable characters, and I suppose that's the thing. You do write good characters, so was that something you'd always set out with? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think I think it's important. From a writer's point of view, you've got to have some sympathy with the characters you're writing for, one way or another, and it helps if if they do have. It's 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 not something I think I can say I consciously make an effort for. That just seems to be a natural part of writing is to come up with 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 good characters that, if I believe in, hopefully other others will too. Something that did make me laugh was the Corman radiation scale. Now I'm assuming that this is derived from Kate Orman. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> named after, yeah, rather cheaply named after Kate Orman. Yeah. Yeah. I was just double checking, just in case, is this something that I've missed completely in my sort of casual dealings with physics? But no, it's, it's a good bit of Doctor Who science. Thank goodness for that. So let's come to Sam. And it's not often that people get the chance to kill off a Doctor Who companion. And then, of course, you get to use a temporal orbit and uh, a nice wee nod to the TV movie there. In the in the original pitch, uh, I never mentioned killing her off, uh, and that's because I had no intention to. But I, I remember writing that bit and that that chapter, and I was writing her sort of eventual demise, and I just continued writing until she was clearly dead. And uh, 
because to me that seemed like the most exciting and dramatic thing and I think one of the pieces of advice that I'd got at the start of the book once I'd been commissioned from Steve Cole was he said to keep it moving and keep surprising the reader so I was always at the back of my mind with chapter endings or whatever was happening is to is to keep trying to throw in things the unexpected and I think that was a sort of distillation of that is I'll be cheeky here and I'll actually kill her off. And I did fret then about how to bring her back, but I thought, well, I just nicked that from the TV movie with the um, temporal orbit. And if Steve doesn't like it, he'll say so. And I'll just have to rewrite that so she doesn't die and she's saved in the nick of time because it's effectively, it's just exactly the same thing, except you wouldn't have that heart stopping moment of her actually expiring. But fortunately, yeah, he liked it and went with it. So I was, I was very happy with that. Yeah, it was a bit of a sort of cheeky punt on on my uh, <laughs> on my behalf, just as I was writing it. it and that does happen occasionally in a lot of books. Sometimes, just through the the act of writing and and you're coming to a particular conclusion on something, and you go a little bit further, or sometimes a lot further than you intended, than than was in the pitch, and. I think sometimes it pays. You, you chance your arm like that, and uh, always aware that they might come back and and nix this completely. But they get away with it. If you get away with it, you get away with it. Absolutely. How did you find working with Steve as an editor? Very good. Um, always have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, um, very good on on, on feedback and, and notes. Um, never too much. Always ready to say whenever he likes something. Yeah, it was good. And what about the cover? When did you give them any notes to Black Sheep to see what you might have on it? Or was it one that they came up with? Yeah, to my surprise, I was sort of asked about the cover. And at that point in the in the early books, they were very much going up for that circular f- motif for all the books. So I had in mind already what I would prefer, which was the a sort of the eclipse being viewed from the surface of of Janus Prime, um, which in my original draft had green glowing sand. Um, but I think it was Black Sheep came back and asked, would it be possible to make the sand blue because it just looks better on their design than the green? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, right at the end of the books, Steve basically talked to me about that and said, would it be possible to change it to blue? And I said, absolutely, it's easy. It was just a case of going through and changing all the references yep. to the colour of the, of the sand, um, of which there were probably three or four throughout the book, and done it that way. So that's why the, the cover's got blue sand on it. Uh, I'd always assumed it was because you were an Everton fan. <laughs> no, no, nothing to do with football. <laughs> are you an Everton fan or are you a Red <laughs> or neither? Neither. Try me rovers then. There we go. That's the I'm, answer. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a football enthusiast at all. Okay. See, that's the typical thing in Glasgow. You're either Rangers or Celtic, apparently. And then I yes. confuse things by saying that I'm an Aberdeen fan and that no, but who do you really support? So I'll then go with Queen's Park, who play at Hamden Park. And I was a ball boy for them for two years. So there you go. There is a, there is a third answer. There genuinely is. There's a way out. So if in Glasgow, Queen's Park. There you go. 
did you have any particular sections of the book that were favourites when you think back to it now? Well, gosh, now you're asking. Um, yes, yes. Initially, I loved writing scenes with the Doctor inside the TARDIS, especially that particular TARDIS from the TV movie, which mm -hmm. I absolutely adored and still do to this day, because there's so much in it. Uh, and everybody loves the, the original sort of sterile white control rooms that we had in the traditional series, and, uh, and that's great for the TV series. Actual nightmare to write for, <laughs> because there's just nothing to sort of, to, to, for the Doctor to, to do except switch, switch, you know, turn switches or flick levers or whatever. But with, with the one from the TV movie, there was a lot more going on. So it, it was quite easy to describe that. And, and there's the thrillers of a new writer writing for the Doctor in his TARDIS is just great and doing all the sort of Doctory things he does in there. I very much enjoyed writing the Spydroid bit where the, the spiderlings, the baby spiders, attacked the Doctor and ran over the Doctor because that was quite gruesome. Lunda, I enjoyed writing the character Lunda very much because in my mind's eye, uh, and the name is a giveaway, he was based on Dolph Lundgren. Um, of course. <laughs> of course, because I wanted to get that sort of very physical action hero type person in there who had up until that point been the natural hero of the Mendons because he was such a sort of go get him action hero only to have the doctor arrive and provide better and alternative answers to everything than, than Lunda could provide so there's a sort of uneasy relationship between those two a bit of a bit of rivalry which I, I think I returned to that later on in Prisoner of the Daleks, where he uh, went in quite heavy with that, with the Tenth Doctor and uh, and, and Bowman, the, the leader of the uh, the mercenaries there. But uh, Lunda, definitely, yes, yes, based on Dolph Lundgren, and uh, very much enjoyed writing for him, because it meant that I also, whilst everybody's running around with guns on Janus Prime, I could write action scenes which appeal to me as well. So the Doctor doesn't have to get involved in that kind of thing, but the other characters can. Absolutely. But before I ask you for your final thoughts, when you look back in the book now, I'm going to read you a wee bit here. It's from the book I Who. It's an unauthorised guide to Doctor Who novels. Um, a lot of the conclusions in there I disagree with vehemently, but I'll read you this one here about the Janus Conjunction. What starts out as a standard Maroon's colonist tale complete with guns and soldiers, turns into something even greater. The Janus Conjunction is very clean, with a brave, tight-knit cast that shows tremendous growth. For starts, the soldier Lunder becomes a lover. It's a well-ordered, enjoyable story of cosmic destruction with good twists that can be violent, with a bit of gory without going over the top. You hear a staccato of doom during the engaging must-finish ending. Oh, that's very nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's not bad. From 2001, I think that is. So, It's, it's funny, I mean, it's, it's lovely to hear things like that, and I'll tell you about when that was published and then the reviews started to come in in things like TV Zone and Cult Times, which were the uh, genre magazines of that time, Starburst and that, 
when they reviewed these as they came out. And the first review I picked up, I think it might have been TV Zone or something like that. And it was like 10 out of 10 score. And the reviewer absolutely loved it. And I thought, wow, this is my first book. I, you know, this is this is brilliant. I've scored a hit on my first book like this. I was so pleased. So I got the next magazine and opened that one and looked. And whoever that was was just tore it to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely demolished it and said it was it was you know, run so run of the mill, meat and potatoes, Doctor Who didn't offer anything new. Because I think a lot of, of Doctor Who fiction, it's sort of split into two factions. There are those who love the traditional style stories, which are very much sort of TV stories, but raised to, to, to sort of the highest level they can. Yeah. And there are those who want that format stretched, almost a breaking point so that it offers something new and different that you'd never seen before. And uh, I've always sort of veered towards the traditional meat and potato styles, what I would consider Doctor Who, to, so that it felt like Doctor Who. But some people don't like that so much. They prefer something that, that's a lot different. So I discovered very early on with my first book that you can't please everybody, <laughs> that some people will love it and some people will hate it. And it's exactly the same book. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre because, strange enough, I who didn't enjoy Eater of Wasps but it just it's very very strange just but that's the wonders of Doctor Who opinions not everybody can be as right as me it is I, I mean it genuinely I, I mean that about reviews and stuff like that I, I got to know uh, thankfully very 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 early in that first one that your reviews could literally be from one extreme to the other <laughs> I think I think the uh, one of them I remember about that book particularly has always stuck with me it said uh, that it must have been commissioned for a bet at a drunken party <laughs> that, that phrase has stuck in my mind for, for 20 odd years now it's just I don't think I've ever heard a review like that in my life but it's just so bizarre <laughs> anyway well Trev I love the book so that's all that matters really Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I, I'd forgotten how fond I was of that book. Will it be my first? And as I said, flicking back through it now, and I, I was surprised reading sections of it, how well I thought the prose stood up, actually. I, you know, I'm never going to be a sort of beautiful prose writer, but I like to think that that was okay for a first novel. I was, I was expecting to find myself cringing as I was reading it, thinking, oh, I'd never do that now, I'd never do that now. But I was reading paragraphs and thinking, actually, yeah, this is this is jollying along quite nicely here. Fantastic. Well, stood the test of time. <laughs> it definitely has. It definitely has. Trev, thanks as always for your time. And hopefully we'll speak to you very soon about Cold Heart. Yes, yeah, look forward to it. Yeah, I'd like to do that, Kenny, thanks. Right. Okay, Kenny, you mentioned earlier that Sam died. I need to ask, what happened and how was she resurrected? Yeah, she dies from radiation on Janus Prime. And just before she passes away, she wishes she had believed in God, which is quite a fascinating last thought to have. But the Doctor saves her by putting the TARDIS into a temporal orbit, as we saw in the TV movie, which allows him to have time to find a cure to the radiation. Then he returns to a time before he left, gives her the serum and they leave. So... Yeah, she's saved, so that's good. But at the time, reading it, I just remember thinking, bloody hell, Sam's gone. That was her. But I did not expect that to happen. But um, 
Well, it's uh, it's an interesting way to do it. And yeah, well done to Trevor. It's something a bit different. It definitely had a shock factor at the time. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I mean, the wishing that she believed in God as she passed away, I'd imagine would be from like a sense of, if you believed in God, at least you'd feel quite serene in the fact that there was something to look forward to after death. Yeah, it's quite a heavy concept. And I think it's quite interesting just bringing it in the way that it did, because it's it's not hugely dealt with. It's not, you know, hugely dwelt upon, but it's still an interesting thought. And it does make you go, hmm, would I? But then again, because I know that when my mum passed away, she had her faith and that kept her going. And um, after my dad passed away, that was a thing that kept her strong. But um, not for me. I just found, and this will sound really facile and, and cheeky and silly, but I just found that watching old Doctor Who helped me putting on the likes of the five doctors and and the TV movie are the ones, particularly those two are the ones that got me through. So each to their own. Exactly. Religion is a great comfort to many people, but it's not for everyone. No, no. We're not going to go into a discussion on theology and the pros and cons of religion and conflict and stuff like that. So, yeah. Anyway, as ever, we've got another excerpt from the book for you. But unfortunately, Chris's original audio file was corrupted and given our deadline, I actually had to quickly re-record it and sound design it, so I'm afraid it's over to me for the second part. The link pulled at the fabric of space like the fingers of an invisible giant tugging on reality. A strange glow diffused the empty twist of air as the forces that created it began to interfere with the visible spectrum and light itself found its path hindered. The Doctor was watching the link closely, apparently mesmerised by its death throes. It was not a thing of beauty. It was a scar on the surface of the universe. His eyes reflected the green light, shining back with their own blaze of curiosity. He started to walk towards it, slowly at first, but then with increasing purpose. Lunder watched him go. He still felt dazed from the crash, and it took him a second to respond. He jumped forward and grabbed the doctor's arm. Hold it, where'd you think you're off to? The doctor looked at him, but said nothing. Then his eyes turned up towards the bloated moon above and considered it intently. Lunder followed his gaze. He could see the moon's pockmarked surface illuminated by the proximity of the planet he stood on. Every crater was starkly visible. His legs felt weak with primal fear of its enormity. Doctor, I think we should try to get back to your TARDIS, said Mosley as he caught up with them. If it has any transportation capability, we should at least try to reach it. The doctor actually smiled at the old sergeant. Oh, the TARDIS's transportation capability, all right. It could get us off this planet in the blink of an eye. Let's go for it then, yelled Lunder. The doctor shook his head. It's in the middle of those ruins. We'd never reach it in time. We have to try! No, no, no. There's more at stake here than saving our own skins. The doctor pointed at the crashed shuttle, and the dark shapes still huddled beneath it. There's the Genusians to consider as well. They have as much right to live as we do. Lunder gaped. Those spiders? There were people once, Lunder, like you and me. They might have had eight legs and mouths which opened sideways, but they lived together in a community with friends and relatives, neighbours, work, science, art. This is still their world, and their descendants still live here. We can't abandon them. 
But they're finished anyway. The planet's doomed. There's nothing we can do. Ah, well, said the Doctor, as he turned back to the link with that look in his eyes. I think I've just had an idea about that. Remember, if you've enjoyed this episode of Pieces of Eighth, or indeed liked any episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, as it means more people can find our episodes and it's always appreciated. We certainly do. Uh, and also with some really good comments and things, haven't we, over the past few days now that sort of Spotify has dropped comments and things saying that we've produced something yeah. in the region of there was 1,996 minutes of content. That was probably up to the end of November. Appropriate, given that McGann became the Doctor in 1996. And, um, yeah, there's been some lovely stats. That is really, really... I hadn't I hadn't twigged. That's brilliant. I love that. Yeah, one of uh, one of our listeners pointed that out last night. And that wow, that's really cool. Um, but, yeah, thank you to everybody for tuning in, listening, and so many for having us in your top five most listened to podcasts. And of course, we should of course mention our favourite Belgian at this point as well, who is our number one fan. We love Tina Peters so, we so much. Do. I'm still looking for some Belgian chocolates though, but really, really, really looking for some Belgian Because <laughs> you're craving them. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah. Tina, drops a line. You know that Becca will be um, delighted to receive some Belgian goodness from you. So, Oh yeah, no, I'll happily pay for them. It's just the fact that I can't get them here. <laughs> Right, we'll be back tomorrow with episode 17, Bell Tempest, and we'll hear from its author, Jim Mortimer. So until next time, I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm Rebecca Schlappen. I actually had to think about it there. What am I going to say now? Yeah, <laughs> sorted. <laughs> I've had to, well, I had to, I had to, I had to mimic you, obviously. Yeah, you did. You thought I was doing it for style, but no, I generally had forgotten who I was for a second. I've had 48 and a half years to work it out and still don't quite know, so, oh well. Ugh. Bye-bye. But yes, reading voice, activate. The planet's Yanus. Janus? Janus? Anus. No, Janus.